It's that time of year when you just feel like getting away from it all for a while. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. In the hour ahead, we'll consider two very different vacation options. Exploring the open road has long been a part of the American scene. Today, we'll get some expert advice on how to get the most out of a car trip. Whether you set your sights on the Red Rock open vistas of the American Southwest or rent a car to tour the Big Island of Hawaii. And for something truly different, let's fly halfway around the world. Bali in Indonesia is one of the most stunning destinations anywhere. Gregarious monkeys, first-time fruits, plush mountain vistas, and surreal snorkeling. The beauty of its tropical island scenery is complemented by the warmth of the Balinese people and their vivid culture. From taking the great American road trip to a little hedonism on the beach in Bali, we're ready to travel in the hour ahead. And you're invited. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines. With their new Advantage Award booking tool, it's easier than ever to book to over 800 Advantage Award destinations online at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly. Bali in Indonesia has had its challenges lately, but its resilient people continue to provide unforgettable experiences for backpackers and resort vacationers alike. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. We'll learn more about what Bali has to offer later this hour from the author of the Lonely Planet Guidebooks to the Region. First, let's consider a great American road trip. Some of the world's most exciting destinations are right here in the USA. And good road trippers know the benefits of venturing down America's back roads. Jeff Campbell from Lonely Planet joins us in a minute to share some of his favorite places in Utah and the Southwest. He'll take your calls at 877-333-RICK. We're road tripping across the United States and then venturing off to what many consider paradise on Earth, Bali in Indonesia. Thanks for joining us on today's Travel with Rick Steves. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves, and I am really excited about this next bit because we're about to explore one of the most fascinating countries on the face of this planet, the United States of America. When I talk to people who find travel thrills exploring our own country, it just inspires me to get out and have a road trip. And we've got Mr. Road Trip from Lonely Planet with us here. (laughs) Jeff Campbell has joined us, and Jeff is the author of The Lonely Planet Guide to the USA. Jeff, thanks for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. Now, Jeff, uh, this is a 1,200-page guidebook, the Lonely Planet USA Guide, and uh, (laughs) I see there's 12 or so authors. That means each did about 100 pages. Is that the deal? Uh, something like that, yeah. And then your your name's on the top. Why is that? Is it alphabetical? Uh, no, no. The way Lonely Planet structures their books is that they designate one author to be the coordinating or lead author, and uh, a lot of times that person does a lot of the, the front matter, the general okay. culture and outdoors and that kind of stuff, as well as coordinating the team and making sure that everybody's on the same page. And all 50 states, that's a pretty big beat. Do you get to... It's a I su- huge undertaking. I suppose everybody's got their fortes, and it would make sense to let you research the forte, right? Yes, yes. That's another reason to have so many and, people And uh, what, what sections of the United States did you research for this book? Uh, I did California, Central and Northern California. Have you traveled outside of that? You've, you've also done a book on Zion and Bryce. That's correct. I love the uh, Red Rock Desert of the Southwest, and so I've, I've been there a couple of times for Lonely Planet. And you contributed to a book on Hawaii. Actually, that, that's coming up right now. I'm about to leave for Hawaii uh, in about two days. All right. So let's talk a little bit about your favorite places. You uh, mentioned you're kind of a Red Rock junkie. I know a lot of people are just really into Canyonlands and so on. What's, what's, the, uh, what's the allure? Well, it was surprising to me. I always thought of myself as a beach person. And then I went to the desert, and I realized that I was a desert person as well. You talk about the excitement of being in the United States, and I think a lot of people can overlook it, how uh, amazing the, the natural wonders of this country really are. And the landscape there is so overwhelming with the colors and the erosion and the canyons um, and just the, the horizon that seems to go on forever, that it really, it takes your breath away. Well, help, help me that, because my dad was the same way. My dad just loved the desert. What is it about the desert? You hear it's got so much life, but to me it seems like a wasteland. <laughs> it's, it's a misconception about the desert, actually. Uh, I mean, this particular desert is full of life. Um, it's not a sand desert. What you find when you, when you hike in the canyons and hike on the plateaus is that what from afar just looks absolutely desolate is actually full of animals and plants and life clinging in these little niches in 
Zion National Park, there are these fern grottos in which there'll be a trickle of, of water that just sort of seeps out of the, the sandstone and down the walls, and, and plants will just grow in enormous abundance and incredible diversity in these just tiny little pockets in the middle of this desert. Wow, a fern grotto. I've never heard of that. So what are the tricks to find this life? Is there a certain time of day or a certain season, or how do you know where to, where to get this abundance? Some of it is seasonal. Uh, some of it is just knowing where to go. Um, Zion is certainly a place where you can find a lot of this. There's actually a swamp in Zion National Park, believe it or not. The Virgin River has cut such a deep gorge. At a certain points, it spreads out so much and is so shallow that there's a kind of a, a swampy terrain because the sun doesn't just, you know, there's, there's cover and the sun doesn't really right. get down there to, to burn it up. Now, if you want real desolation, just you and nature, where do you go? Uh, the, the Utah-Arizona border has lots of good, good candidate places if, if you really want to be uh, as far as possible from another human being. Isn't there one place around there like the last place to be mapped in the United States or something like this? Well, that's right. The Grand Staircase Escalante National Monument because it was one of the last, uh, or the last place in the continental USA to be mapped. It certainly has that. Since it's been uh, named a national monument, it's getting a little more um, traffic, but there are no real paved roads that go across it. It's all dirt roads. Huh. And it's very it's, it's very easy to get stuck, and it's very easy to get lost. So one should, should be prepared if you're going to be going into this desert. You don't do so casually. There's a lot of, there's a sort of a commotion of national parks in this part of the United States. How do you sort through them, and, and, and in a nutshell, which ones would you recommend for what reason? The hard and easy answer is I would recommend all of them. There's just there's not, there's not a, a, a bad one in the bunch. You certainly uh, can't lose. The first time I drove through southern Utah on the southwest, I was kind of amazed that you could define a national park because it seemed like every road was just as amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, but national parks protect uh, particularly dramatic features, Zion is, is known for its canyon. Canyonlands is known for its an enormous canyon, obviously. Arches are known for the, the stone arches that have been carved out. Do you find those arches only in arches, or are they everywhere, and that's just the greatest abundance of them? The, 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 that's correct. That's correct. They are, they are around, but they are congregated in such an amazing way in arches, and it's, uh, it's actually, that's one of the easiest parks to visit. What fun for uh, a photographer, in, huh? Oh, it's just, it's, it's incredible. Because you, you, you just sort of drive up and walk half a mile and you just pass arch after arch. And what it's, made it's those really arches, incredible. do you know, Jeff? Uh, well, it's, a, it's the, the erosion. Um, there's a couple of ways in which erosion can work. One of them is by rivers and the another is um, the way the rock breaks and the condensation and the heating and the, the water working the, working the rock and it slowly works it away over eons and eons and leaves, leaves this arch. You can get turned on to ge- geology, can't you, when you uh, get out there in, in these vast areas? I mean, I remember just thinking of the you Colorado can become River. very nerdy very quickly. <laughs> <laughs> uh, just this bandsaw effect of rivers cutting through the rocks over the eons is quite inspirational. Ten thousand tons of ice are crushing you into a beautiful one of us. Hey, we have Keith on the phone from in Briar, Washington. And uh, Keith, uh, thank you for your call. Well, thank you, uh, Rick and uh, Jeff. Uh, Jeff, I was just uh, Canyon de Shea. I remember uh, early morning and just hiking down uh, to the White mm. House. Any comments on the Canyon de Shea? Well, I have to admit that I have not been to the Canyon de Shea. Uh, Keith, what was your experience there? Yeah, please tell us. Oh, it was a... Um, I guess it's uh, maybe I shouldn't even have mentioned the Canyon de Shea. It's a little like the back door. Uh, you don't want to ruin it, but uh, huh. right. Yeah, Canyon de Shea is probably one of the most beautiful. Just the lights playing off the uh, the rock, and uh, it's uh, the Navajo. You have to take a tour with the Navajo to go into the main part, but you can hike down into the canyon. and And I got up early and just went down uh, just about sunrise, and it. Uh, I guess as Jeff was mentioning, a communing with nature. It was. Just beautiful. Sounds great. Now, is there a lot of Indian culture there? Uh, there is. 
uh, Indian culture. It's also the site where the U.S. Uh, rounded up the Navajo and made the uh, long walk. Uh, so there's a lot of history there, too. Is that adequately displayed there, Keith, for people who want to uh, gain an appreciation of that history? It is a national monument, and so, yes, that, that is displayed there. And then you're pretty close to Santa Fe and Taos. Correct, correct. Taos has got to be one of the most fascinating bits of history I've seen. Yes, and even on the way, I don't know, if Jeff, if you've been to Chaco Canyon, the history there is just, that's in kind of a northwestern uh, New Mexico. So the place, that's Keith, right. that you want to keep secret is Canyon de Shelly, and it's spelled <laughs> C-H-E-L-L-Y, right? Or, and it's, Canyon and it's de Canyon de yes. But spelled like Shelley. Yes. That's yes. interesting. Thank you for sharing that secret. Okay. And uh, happy travels. Thank you. And uh, Scott's on the line in Chicago, Illinois. Uh, Scott, thanks for your call. Oh, you're welcome. It's an honor to be on with you, Rick and Jeff. Uh, and my question kind of is, is for, you know, these long trips, these long uh, road trips, you know, what I call keeping from getting highway bored. Um, hmm. What I do is usually bring along, you know, my favorite kind of music, and I was just wondering, uh, what are your ways to keep from getting highway bored? I like that phrase, highway bored. You made that up. Yeah. <laughs> if you're going to take a road trip, I think certainly one of the things is that you need to enjoy driving, uh, and that's, you know, one measure that you should take of yourself when you go. Um, I I enjoy both the long drives, and that, that, that highway bored is a certain kind of meditation, I think, for me sometimes. But um, beyond just that, just, you know, good conversation with whoever I'm with and, and music, uh, lots of stops, and and trying to uh, let myself be open to the road. If I see a place called Mom's Pies, I always stop. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I've uh, I've spent a lot of time driving, I don't know how many hours, but a lot of hours in Europe, and uh, if of course, it's nice to meditate and just be there, but if you're ever kind of bored and just want to be entertained, I find comedy albums on my iPod really are great. <laughs> comedy albums, and um, I listen to back uh, back episodes of this radio show. You can download about 100 hours of them, and, uh, and there's appropriate ones. So uh, there's lots of ways nowadays with iPods to tune into your favorite podcast and uh, catch up on, on back listening. Great. Scott, how's that for a plug? That, that is great. <laughs> <Thanks> <laughs> a your, wonderful plug. Thanks for your call, Scott, and uh, continued Thank happy you. travels uh, as you explore our country. Thank you. Happy travel to you. Cares of the past are behind Nowhere to go but I'll find Just where the trail will wind Drifting along with a tumbling tumbleweed I know when night has Next up, Jeff Campbell shares his tips for touring the Big Island of Hawaii on Travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines, with 4,000 flights to 250 cities in some 40 countries around the world every day. It's easy to book your next flight at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly. Kesha, can you teach a tongue twister in Polish? With pleasure. Are you ready? Szczebrzeszynie, chrząż brzmi w trzcinie, a szczebrzeszyn z tego słonie, że tam sobie chrząż brzmi w trzcinie. 
What did you say in English, Kasia? I mean, English it goes. It's quite a ridiculous line. Uh, there is a cricket playing its songs in the town of Stebrzeszyn, and he's having a lot of fun doing this. <laughs> say it again, Kasia. Jeff Campbell from Lonely Planet is our guest with tips on some of his favorite sites for touring in the USA, including his next assignment, the Big Island of Hawaii. And from Hawaii, we'll jet all the way to Bali, understandably the reason most people travel to Indonesia. Matt Warren, who writes for Lonely Planet about Bali, explains why, for so many people, Bali is the island of their tropical dreams. We're at 877-333-7425 or radio at ricksteves.com. Thanks for joining us on Travel with Rick Steves. Talking with Jeff Campbell, he is the author of the Lonely Planet Guidebook to the USA. Jeff, I, I noticed you're uh, uh, working on a book on Hawaii also, and uh, one of the highlights apparently in your uh, travel experience in Hawaii is hiking across a live volcano. What's that like? Uh, hot. Not bad. <laughs> it's, a very, it's a very unique experience, and it's one that I would highly recommend to anyone, and it's one to be gotten over quickly. Uh, it's Kilauea Volcano in Hawaii Volcanoes National Park on the Big Island. When Mark Twain arrived in the, the, the islands in the 1800s, the volcano there was just a pot of boiling lava there that has since cooled, and you can walk across, not, not that part, but part of the, the crater, and the steam comes up from below, and you can feel the power of the mountain, essentially, and of the, the, the raw new earth just beneath your feet. Do you drive up there and then you drive along the crater and get off at trailheads, or how does that work? Yeah, you drive up to the rim. There's a road that goes around the rim, and then there's several trails, uh, one main trail that goes down into the uh, the main crater. Oh, you hike um, into the crater? Yes, you do. You can hike into the crater wow. and walk across it. It's a, it's, I, can't, I don't remember the exact mileage. What's but it like? It's a couple, like? miles, is, is there, a couple there, miles across. Is it a lunar kind of, if, if, if ever you were in a lunar landscape, I would imagine yes. that would be it. There are other places besides in the crater that are actually a wider landscape, and they do give you that lunar feeling where lava flows have come and just wiped out everything, and that's all that's left is this jumbled rock, the lava rock, and it's uh, it's No vegetation? No vegetation? None at all. None at all. So there's Um, your desert. I mean, if you want desolation, wow. But you can also hike up on the Big Island and, uh, if you're lucky, see the actual live lava pouring out into the ocean. Kilauea has been out of a side vent, not out of the main crater, been uh, erupting since, I think, 1983. And are there guides that take you, or do you just kind of uh, venture out there on your own? You can do a guided trip. There are definitely uh, people who do guided trip, but you can go out on your own. The, the Park Service treads a fine line between encouraging and discouraging people. They know that they can't stop people, so they try to advise people as how to do it safely. The trail is very modestly marked, but there's lots of people who do it. You just go out about an hour before sunset. and Well, it depends on where the flow, the, the flow changes all the time. There's no way to predict. Sometimes you might have to hike for an hour or more, and sometimes you just have to hike for about 10 minutes. It's part of the, it's a little cottage industry, I suppose, for local guides and, and, and so on. I, when I was in uh, Sicily in the south of Italy, Mount Etna was, uh, al- is alive, and mm. they take you up there, and guides take mm. you around, and you actually mm. get to see the live lava flow, and they even have a man pulling out live lava, which is like a gooey kind of toffee, and putting it into molds, and it dries, really? and it becomes um, ashtrays made out of hot what, what was hot <laughs> lava that's a, uh, a souvenir uh, from uh, Sicily or Mount Etna. So uh, I guess um, if you can uh, find a live volcano, and if you know who can take you where, you can actually wow. see that lava flow. Well, you know, they, they say, and I, I, I subscribe to this, that one shouldn't take the lava rock off of the Big Island because there's a, a woman who lives there named Pele who will be unhappy 
Oh, the you goddess of volcanoes? Yes. You yes, don't want to yes, cross yes. the goddess of volcanoes, Madame no, Pele. No, hey, now, no, no. you called it Kilauea, <laughs> Jeff. Is that the same as Mauna? I thought Mauna Loa was the, big, the mountain on the big island. Well, there's, there's actually five volcanoes on the big island. Oh, I thought it was like one big Mount Fuji kind of uh, structure that sticks out of the Pacific Ocean. But there's five mountains on the big island? There, there are actually there are five volcanoes, and okay. Mount Loa is the most massive. Mount Kea is slightly higher, huh. and they are right next to each other. Kilauea is further down; it's not as tall, and at, that's the most active one. Although Mount Loa is very active and it, it erupts regularly, and that's the one that uh, everybody is afraid one year is going to erupt so much that it'll wipe out Hilo. Oh my goodness! Because there's a, you know, there's just a funnel basically between those two largest mountains that would take the lava and send it right down, and it's done it several times in the last 200 years. The Big Island is about what over 13,000 feet above sea level. That's right. But I understand that it's basically one mountain that goes way straight down to the ocean floor, and if measured from the ocean floor, it's actually taller than Mount Everest. Much taller, much taller. Actually, if you if you take the whole feature that is Mount Aloha, it is if not the one of the sort of two or three largest features in the solar system. There are volcanoes. I think there's a volcano on Mars and one on Venus huh. that are a little bit bigger. Really? But, but on, it is on this planet, it's the ultimate. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As long as you don't discriminate against stuff under sea level. That's right. That's right. We just don't see it. All right. Hey, we've got one more call on the line. We've got uh, Dwight calling in from Grants Pass, Oregon. Dwight, thanks for your call. Oh, thanks a lot. Uh, nice to talk to both of you, Jeff and Rick. And one, one thing that I was wondering was, I haven't done a lot of traveling in the United States, and I love the city centers in Europe. Um, Salzburg comes to mind, even Venice or the old center in Vienna. And I know there's a lot less history here in the United States, but, but what United States cities would you recommend that have that kind of city center feel that have good transportation where you can just dro- kind of drop yourself into that city and really be able to explore around a lot on foot or with limited transportation. I mean, the first city that comes to mind is certainly my favorite and uh, my hometown of San Francisco. I think that there's a wonderful history to San Francisco, uh, certainly not nearly as old as uh, the European cities, but very interesting. And it's just an extremely walkable and the public transportation is excellent, so it's very easy to just plop yourself down and uh, never have to worry about a car or a road trip for your entire trip. Oh, great. Boy, that is such a good observation, Dwight, because when I'm in Europe, I'm just enamored by how people-friendly the big cities are, and basically that's what you're talking about, isn't it? Exactly. One of the things I really enjoyed about Europe was being able to take a train and, and drop myself into Munich, for example, and getting right into the old city and just being able to explore that city on foot because I really enjoy walking and even being within walking distance of most of the museums and right. and so much history and things. Now, so, interesting about that, Dwight, in Munich, uh, all the German cities had to make a big decision after World War II. They were basically all bombed flat. They took Actually, they took votes in the late 1940s. How are we going to rebuild? Are we going to rebuild on our cozy, people-friendly medieval plan or are we going to chuck that out and rebuild on what they called the Manhattan plan, just skyscrapers and bigger roads and mm-hmm. Plans. Uh, Frankfurt opted for the Manhattan plan, and that's what you get today. And Munich, Munich opted for the cozy, gemütlich medieval plan, and today we have that charm and that that wonderful people friendliness in Munich. But Europeans, they've learned to live with that dense population, and America is more designed with this uh, great outdoors and the rugged individualism. And the great tool for that, of course, is the car. And so it's nice to uh, enjoy the great outdoors in the United States and drop into cities that uh, may be a little more people friendly than others. And I think San Francisco certainly is a winner in that case. Uh, what's, what's another city that has a great people-friendly ambience to it, Jeff, in the United States? I think Chicago is also another city that uh, benefits walking and has plenty to offer for somebody without uh, a car and a good public transportation system, in addition to, to Manhattan, New York. Manhattan feels good. And also Boston. I felt very uh, European Yes, that's Boston. true. Boston, too. I'm relatively new to the Northwest, and Portland, I found, is, is a fun little compact city. Um, yes. You know, for a shorter period of time. I grew up in Southern California, and of course, when you think of Los Angeles, you don't think of any kind of city center. So, <laughs> you know, trying to find those kinds of cities in the United States has been a little tough, at least from the places I've experienced. So. Right. Well, I think it is a problem, and I think that's one reason why 
road trips are such a thing because you have to rely on a car most of the time to, to see what you want to see in the United States. Dwight, thank you very much for your call and happy oh, travels. thank you so much. You bet. I'm speaking with Jeff Campbell. He's the author of The Lonely Planet Guide to the USA. Jeff, the big challenge for any parent taking their kids on the road is how to pass time in the car. Uh, you know, road trip by definition is lots of time in the car. Oh, yeah. What are some of the best tips that you can uh, review just for helping uh, the family uh, maintain a little sanity and enjoy themselves together <laughs> on a long road trip? Yes, one sanity is sorely tested on a road trip. It's a good test of patience. I think that when, as, as a parent, you want to expose your child to the world. One of the exciting things is to share your love of travel and your sense of wonder at the world. And, and a child is pretty much just interested in what's in it for them. <laughs> and so a lot, of, a lot of successful road trips depend on breaking down the moments for the child into much smaller pieces that they can manage, which is thinking up destinations along the way, whether it be a park or just some interesting thing that is only an hour away that you can stop at and see or anticipate. Another is that if you're in the car and driving for a long time to bring along something that can kind of be doled out along the way This on this last trip that we took. We had some gifts that we were going to give out every other day or something like that, so they would have something new to play with, both the kids. And one of them that turned out to be the winner were these uh, tattoos. And we, on an on a inspirational whim, I said, well, at every stop, we'll, uh, you can have a new tattoo. And so both the kids just loved this, and they did this, and they would think, of, while we were driving, they would think about which tattoo was going to be uh, that they would do at the next right. stop. It was a very good way to keep them engaged and keep them interested. Um, of course, they did look like uh, bikers by the time we got to South Dakota. <laughs> That's a great idea of just stumbling onto something that works for you, and, and who'd have thunk that that'd be a brilliant idea, but that sounds very clever to give them a, a dole out little goodies as you go through the different various stops. Boy, I, just when you're talking about thinking of the kids in relation to the adult stops, I remember in, in Europe with our little tiny kids, you know, if mm-hmm. there happened to be a children's playground outside of a great museum, the carousel in the park with the little French kids yes. was just as yes. much a pleasant memory yes. for the entire family as the Monet Museum itself. So it really it's important to develop uh, some parenting eyes when you sort through all the wonders that you as an adult want to enjoy on your trip. Well, the world is big and the world is small But there's lots of room for the short and the tall Oh, the world is far and the world is wide But there are many different ways to see the other side talking with Jeff Campbell. He's the author of The Lonely Planet Guide to the USA. Uh, Jeff, I know uh, your favorite place or one of your favorite places is uh, Northern California. What's the, mm. what's the big attraction for you uh, about Northern California? Uh, where, to, where to begin? Um, well, it starts actually with the coastline. It's a very uh, beautiful and unique coastline. I'm not someone who needs to have to lie in the sun all day, so I love the the rugged cliffs and the rocks and the the fog, actually. I've grown quite fond of the fog. I think that the trees, the landscape, I mean, it's just um, to be among the giant sequoias and in an ancient forest like that is uh, also a very moving experience. Um, They're the living elders of our world, and when you're among them, you you feel that. You feel that. uh, They're... They're remarkable, actually. And the mountains, the granite mountains of the Sierra Nevadas are uh, as dramatic and and gorgeous as they come. Wow, sounds great. Somebody like you, who spends so much time and puts in so many miles updating a travel guidebook, I know the pay is not enough to be the sole (laughs) motivator. Uh, You know, tell me, what's what's the greatest joy in your research when you think back on on a recent trip? Well, there are two joys. One is uh, actually meeting people. As much as I talk about the landscape and uh, what moves me in terms of, of the land, it's actually the, the people that you meet along the way uh, unexpectedly. And I think that one of the things that I enjoy about travel writing is that it gives me excuse to walk up to strangers and start a conversation that I might not do and that I don't always do quite as, as much when I'm just traveling by myself. And I might just sort of keep to myself as opposed to bothering someone else. But I have information to gather, and I want to meet people and, and take the measure of a place. It's a wonderful experience to uh, to drive around the country and to, to travel around the country and to meet the various folks who live there and, and, and make it their home. 
uh, one of the things that you find is that most people are very proud of their home, and for, for good reason. You know, it's, it's interesting you, you say that because I'm saving a little treat for myself. I'm going to dedicate mm. two days to writing a travel guidebook chapter to my little town of Edmonds, just half an hour oh, north of that's Seattle. Very sweet. And I've that's been thinking great. about it, and I'm, I can hardly wait to do it because I'm going to approach it like you or I would when we write one of our chapters, and that is meet mm. the people and try to bring out the, the personality of each shop and each little corner and, and all the history so that visitors can understand it. But in this case, the visitor will be me a hometown boy that doesn't know my town well enough because I want to meet more people. You know, when we're talking about this, we, we enjoy the, the natural aspects and, of course, the people. And that's, that's the great thing about travel, isn't it? Oh, it's wonderful. People are just very happy to, to represent where they live and to, to help you see the beauty of it and what they love about it. All right. Jeff Campbell, author of The Lonely Planet Guide to the USA. There's lots of fun places to discover thanks to your work. Thank you so much, Jeff, for being with us. Thank you, Rick. It's been wonderful being here. I just drove in at a station And I sit now, fill her up I watched the figures on the meter I heard the gasoline gurgle and go He checked my oil and water And cleaned my windshield, too Thinking I was in for a great big night But if that guy only knew I've got ethyl in my gas tank, no cow in my arm. There ain't no girl around me to let me share her charm. Just an empty seat beside me, I'm so lonely I could cry. Just ethyl in my gas tank, cause my real girl said goodbye. One of the fun ways for you to participate on Travel with Rick Steves is by being creative. Write us a haiku poem about your travels. Tell us in a few well-chosen words about the sights, smells, and people you've encountered, and we'll read a few of our favorites on a future edition of Travel with Rick Steves. Here's some recent haiku we especially liked. Nate Fisher of Oklahoma City writes us this haiku, which gives us his impression of the legendary Trevi Fountain in Rome. Coins and laughter fly. Neptune casts a stone-cast spell. Smile, return insured. This is a poem Travis Kopp of Seattle composed last year while taking a three-day walk in the countryside of Scotland. Volcanic slate. Long ago, stacked to keep out sheep. Now covered by moss. And Nari Kanan of Pleasanton, California, writes us this poem about the advantage of having a window seat. Out the plain window, below puffy white clouds, villages play peekaboo. Next, we're traveling all the way to Indonesia. The author of the Lonely Planet Guidebooks to Bali in Indonesia, Matt Warren, joins us from his home base in London for a peek at the magic of Bali. To tell us about your travels to Bali, join in the conversation on our message board in the radio section at ricksteves.com.
I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves, and we're traveling to one of my favorite places on the entire face of this planet. We're going to Bali. Bali, the wonderland. Indonesia is a vast Muslim country that stretches as far as the United States, uh, as far as uh, square miles go. In fact, it's the biggest Muslim population on the planet. But there's one little enclave of Hinduism on a paradise island called Bali. We're joined today by Matt Warren, and Matt Warren contributes to the Bali, the Java, the Indonesia, the Southeast Asia guides, all published by Lonely Planet. Matt, thanks for joining us. No problem at all. Hello. Matt, I described Bali as a little Hindu enclave in a vast sea of Muslim islands. Is that fair? Uh, That's exactly right. I think it's fair to say that, well, Hinduism had its heyday in Java once upon a time, but now it's just uh, Bali. To see Hinduism alive and well, anyway, you can visit the monuments elsewhere in the archipelago, but they're, they're remnants of past times, whereas in Bali you can see living, breathing, the beating heart of Hinduism. Now, I'm charmed by Hinduism uh, in Indian travel. If you're traveling to India, of course, it's uh, 800 million Hindus, basically. Is it the same kind of Hinduism that you'd experience in Bali? Um, more or less, although it does, have a, it does have a very local flavor. It's got a distinctly East Asian, East Asian twang to it. They say there's a festival for every day of the year in Bali. Yeah, certainly if you go to one of the big temples, uh, Kurabasaki, on the hillsides of um, the largest volcano there, Gunanagung, the temple there will have at least 50 festivals every year. And um, the most famous is Niepi, which falls somewhere in March, April time, according to a Hindu calendar rather than our own. On that, in the run-up to that period, the locals get very colorful. They take gifts and offerings to the temple, and just before the, the day itself, they have a big fanfare, bang drum, scare the evil spirits away. And then, for the benefit of any that are remaining, everything shuts down on the day itself um, in an attempt to persuade the spirits that the island is deserted. So if you happen to be on the island on that day, you'll find it very, very quiet indeed. There's a lot of scaring of evil spirits, isn't it? Yeah, indeed. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I guess any, any evil spirits that remain in Bali are pretty hardy. Indeed. In 1963 was the last time the uh, Gunung Agung, the big volcano there, exploded. Obviously, immediately, people assumed that they'd offended the gods. There's a very, very strong sense of religion and spirituality on the island. From my experience, that's certainly the case. As I was just uh, tooling about, driving down small roads, invariably, I'd, I'd stumble upon uh, f- really ornate, formal, ritualistic processions, parades, everybody out, everybody dressed up, and just very festive and in love with life. Indeed, uh, and you know, in fact, not for the families involved, obviously, but if uh, cremations are, uh, as in India, a great festival almost, a celebration of life, but a moving on into another state of being, and they have all the carnival aspect that you'd expect. Cremations in Ubud are, are quite sensational. One of the aspects of appreciating your sightseeing then would be to, to bone up on the culture ahead of time and read the introductions in your guidebooks and so on so you can understand the festivals that are going around. Matt, when we're thinking of Bali, it's a relatively small island, give me a very quick rundown on, on what the major attractions are. Uh, well, you'd most likely fly into an airport between Denpasar and Kuta. Denpasar is the capital and it's relatively unvisited by tourists, but an interesting place to see everyday Bali, just everyday Balinese people going about their business in a big urban environment. South of there, you run into all the big resorts. Kuta is probably the most famous with its nightclubs. Um, north of Denpasar is Ubud, which it was once a small village, the, the cultural heartland of the island, uh, now has a Disney-esque quality in it insofar as there are so many hotels and so many, uh, so many tours going there that it's lost some of its rustic charm, but it still remains the place to see the Balinese arts at their, their finest. North of there, we then get into um, Bali's big volcanoes. Gunung Agung is, is the tallest and can be climbed from a number of villages surrounding it in a six or seven hours. Seeing dawn from the top of one of these volcanoes is one of the probably the big, the greatest attractions. And then on the north coast, Lovina Beach, uh, black sands, but the chance to swim with dolphins, small backpacker lodges, some bigger hotels, 
and for divers, the wreck of the USS Liberty, just offshore of a small town called Tulamben. All right, so to, to review that then, you're going to fly into the big city, Denpasar, and it, it's, t- yep. it's a quick look there, but it's sort of an anomaly, I think, on Bali. And then all of the resort beaches are just to the south. Kuta would be the rowdy backpacker, drinking Australians kind of scene. Yep. Uh, a lot of package tourists and uh, cruise ships on the other beaches, Sanur. And, yep. and then the Florence of the country, uh, historically the cultural center, artisan center, is sort of a exotic tropical town up in the hills called Ubud. And yep. my memory of that is lots of thatched huts and lots of artisans, but it's become so touristed that it's probably had its charm trampled. And then if you want the beach scene without all the tourist groups and the cruises, go to the north coast, Lovina Beach. And that was my highlight. I loved hanging out on Lovina Beach, black sand beaches, and exotic. It's it, I felt like I was swimming through an exotic fishbowl. All the fish you'd see in a pet shop here are right in front of you as you uh, enjoy snorkeling off the coast of Lovina Beach. Yeah, that is exactly so. Since 2002, though, since the bombings, the number of tourists traveling through Bali has reduced. And it's picked up and then reduced after the tsunami and then the subsequent tsunami that hit Java. And it's worth remembering that the further you go away from Kuta and the big centers, many times now, a lot of the resorts have a sort of English seaside resort in the wintertime feel to them. They can feel a bit deserted and a bit lonely. Uh, it's worth keeping that in mind. If you're looking for peace and quiet, then um, they're wonderful. But to keep in mind that sometimes you may feel like you're the only person there. Is that in the resorts you're talking about? Yeah, in, in Lovina Beach sometimes. Uh, certainly if you're there during the monsoon season, which runs approximately October to March, in some of the resorts there appear to be more hotels than people. This has been an unfortunate effect of of the troubles that Indonesia has experienced over the last four years. Well, there's a lot of tension, it being the the most populous Muslim nation on the planet with lots of poverty and lots of ethnic problems within its boundaries. Let's talk just briefly, uh, Matt, about the uh, the bombings. There was a a horrible bombing in 2002, and unusually, uh, as far as uh, terrorist attacks go, this was targeting tourism. They were trying to scare away the tourist business on Bali, and and they effectively did that. I think the wages dropped uh, 40% on average on the island because of the bombing, and and people stopped coming there. And then tourism recouped, and by 2004, it had reached record heights. But then in October 2005, a second bomb, 23 people died, and today it's still recovering from that. What's the latest? Um, I think the press has been very, certainly in the UK, but in the US as well, the press has been quite supportive as has the travel industry as a whole. And uh, Bali is proving to be a very resilient destination. There's obviously a degree of sensitivity at the moment. Um, The fact that there's a background murmuring with regards to avian flu and tsunami, etc., etc., doesn't help the situation either. But this is, on the whole, an extremely friendly, welcoming destination. And the unfortunate events of the past shouldn't put you off. So you you feel safe in Bali? I, I, I feel safe there, absolutely. You'd take your mom there? I would absolutely take my mom there. <laughs> it, it is always worth being vigilant. It is always worth being careful, but the problems are not coming from within Bali itself. Right. Uh, the, the problems are being imported from elsewhere. Right. And uh, it's worth remembering that the Balinese people have have suffered as a result of these uh, these calamities, and, and they should continue to receive our support. Hey, if you care about people in the developing world and their struggles, going on vacation in Bali is a good thing. I want to talk just about a few of the um, well-known images of tourism in Bali. Kuta Beach, uh, you hang out on the beach there and you got all these vendors coming by and people yeah. want to give you a massage. And, and if you want to avoid that, all these people selling stuff, you, you stay in a hotel that's nice enough to have a, a locals free zone fenced off that gives you access to the beach without all of the, uh, yep. the beggars and so on. What's it like to lay on the beach in Kuta these days? It's a bit of a headache, to be honest. It's a fairly fantastic beach. There's lots of people learning to surf on it. Um, everyone congregates there for the sunset. There's lots of life, lots of buzz going on. But you will have the beach vendors selling you necklaces, selling you T-shirts, taxi drivers up and down, lots of people saying, hello, mister, Can <laughs> would you like to go on this tour? Would you like to hire a car? But... It's all part of the backpacker experience there. And, you know, you get to meet people, you get to talk to people and obviously be careful who you talk to. But, you know, it's it's largely where 
the action is at that level. And you get a cheap massage right on the beach if you want? Yeah, you can have a cheap massage right, right on the beach, no problem at all. If you wanted to go somewhere a bit more upmarket, the uh, suburb of Seminyak, uh-huh. which is probably five kilometers north of Kuta, is the place to go if you want upmarket bars, you want recliners on the beach, waiters bringing you cocktails, uh, international DJs spinning the decks, okay, so uh, got, classy hotels and the like. You can shape your beach experience on Bali, it sounds like, and you want a good guidebook so you know what your options are. I'm speaking with Matt Warren. He's on the phone with us from London, and Matt writes the Lonely Planet Guide to Bali and contributes to a number of Lonely Planet guidebooks. Matt, talking about massage, of you know, Thailand is famous for the sexy massages. I think when you go to Bali, you're not talking sexy massages. You're just talking a good, traditional Balinese massage. Boy, my experience, you make an appointment with a guy, and uh, I'm staying in a grass hut somewhere in the middle of the island, and he asked me, what time do you want your massage in the morning? And I say, nine o'clock. Nine o'clock, he comes to my hut. He, I remember uh, I was laying there, and he uh, he sat on my bed, and he sort of rubbed his feet together like a lot of people rub their hands together when they're excited. And then he put the massage oil in his mouth to warm it up. He spit it on my chest, and then he began rubbing away. He played the little tendons in my arm like uh, like guitar strings, and I just felt like a Gumby when the whole thing was done. Magnificent experience, something I've never had anywhere else. Tell us a little bit about uh, the best way to get a massage in Bali. Um, to be honest, there is no best way. There are a million and one different ways. You can, as you say, you can lie on Kuta Beach and wait for a guy or a girl to walk past, pay them a few dollars, and receive a massage right there with a bottle of cold bintang in your hand and the sun going down behind you. Or you can go to Ubud, stay in a a five-star resort, and pay $100 for an extraordinary treatment involving oils and hot stones and everything else you can imagine while overlooking the paddy fields and the dragonflies buzzing past. Um, So it's up to you. depends what your budget is. One fascinating opportunity when you're exploring Bali is to visit people who were there before the Hindus came, the original Balinese people. These are called the Bali Aga. Is that right, Matt? That, that is that is so. How would you best uh, get a look at the Bali Aga civilization or, or, or Well, villages? there's um, a resort called Chandi Dasa. And to digress slightly, this is quite an interesting little resort because it sums up Bali's move into into the modern world in so many ways. Started off as a small village, started growing, became popular, tourists came in, and they blew up the reef to get lime for the cement for all the developments they were building. But unfortunately, the, uh, once the reef had gone, the waves came in and washed the beach away. So it was a rather ironic fate yeah. for uh, Chandidasa. But from this town, you can take a short walk from the center of uh, from the center of town up to Tenganan, which is one of these Bali Aga villages. I sat under a thatch in Tenganan talking to the mayor, and it was just fascinating. And what was really fascinating is how cut off these communities are by their own choice, right, from the the mainstream society. The, the, that's correct. The villages are built around a central meeting place where the village council congregate, and uh, all the all the little homesteads are very similar. And there's a very strong sense of community and culture um, stretching way back. One other aspect of the island we have yet to talk about is the sacred monkey forest sanctuary. Any tips for monkey watching? Um, Be be careful where your fingers go. They're hungry little monkeys, and um, they'll eat whatever they can, including bits of you. They dwell in Ubud in their own little sanctuary, and it's a beautiful walk to walk through the monkey forest sanctuary early in the morning or late at night when the light's at its best, and you'll run into these beautiful little animals. Wow, that sounds like fun. Now, Matt, in your book, you list a little sidebar, the worst of Bali. Let's just review some of these uh, things for people to be aware of. What do you mean by the uh, effect of the avalanche of tourism? Simply that certain areas have been overwhelmed by tourism, and um, the the local culture has, has suffocated, if you like, as, as a result. So even after the, the bombings and so on, what, what were the places that really have been trampled? The charm is just trampled by the tourist crowds. Uh, Kuta, most obviously, nowadays it's a bit of a concrete jungle, but also despite its obvious charms, Ubud as well, to some degree, has become as much a theme park as a traditional cultural hub. 
Now, also, you mentioned transportation touts. These are obnoxious guys ripping off people for rides or what? That's exactly it. Anywhere you go in Kuta or Ubud, you will hear the famous phrase, hello, mister, and that invariably is a way of attracting your attention and uh, an entry point for selling you a tour to X, Y, or Z destination. And the reality is, if you go to Bali, you're rich, they're poor, they want your money, uh, they'll smile, they may be a good value, they may be a, a con artist, and you just got to be a smart traveler. Very, very few people there are looking to separate you from your life savings. It's a few cents here, a few dollars there, right. and to help them out where possible is no bad thing. That's a great thing. And then uh, finally, bintang binging tourists. What do you mean by that? Bintang binging tourists. There we are. We're talking lager louts, people turning up and drinking rather too much of a local brew called bintang, which incidentally comes in very big 660 milliliter bottles. Too many of those in the tropical sun, and you're anybody's. There's a lot of crude, noisy uh, first world travelers in these delicate, fragile, beautiful, uh, developing world cultures, and uh, they're there for the cheap beer and the cheap massage on the beach, and it's it's sort of an obnoxious scene, isn't it? It, it can be, but it's, to be fair, a lot of tourists will, after a couple of days there, begin to respect the local customs. I think particularly in Bali, because because of the Hindu influences, because of the generosity and friendliness of the people, you can't help but relax. You're relaxing in your thatched hut on Lovina Beach, and there's a little animal up in the ceiling. What's going on? That's, that's your little friend. That's a gecko, a little house gecko. Occasionally, you'll see very large ones, about a foot long, but normally they're just a couple of inches. A slightly sinister, yellowy, fleshy color. But um, he's there to help you out, and he'll um, gobble up as many of those bugs as he can stomach in a night and hopefully prevent you getting bitten. So your gecko is a, a good friend. A gecko he's, a, a, he's your best friend, apart from the masseur. Your masseur and your gecko. That, mm. If you've got those two things, then you're away. And a ticket to a gamelan orchestra. Exactly. Tell me, this gamelan orchestra, now that's what the, like a bunch of xylophones, isn't it? Uh, how do you make sure to get the best gamelan experience? Again, you, could, you can book through any hotel, any tourist office, but probably Ubud, again, is the place to go and witness Gamelan and watch a big line of beautifully dressed men play away on their xylophones. The only other accompaniment you need is the, the hum of the grasshoppers and the locusts in the background. Bali, it sounds like a magnificent travel experience. It is indeed. Matt Warren, author of The Lonely Planet Guide to Bali, Thanks for taking us traveling to a beautiful corner of Indonesia. My pleasure. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. Thanks to Brian McCabe at WBGO Newark for engineering help today. You can post your comments on this program and share your travel tips with other listeners. Our website includes guest links, podcast extras, audio archives, and video features, and a place for you to send your comments and questions to Rick. It's in the radio section at ricksteves.com. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines. With their new Advantage Award booking tool, it's easier than ever to book to over 800 Advantage Award destinations online at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly.